Well, we do praise you, Father, that you've made us yours. All praise and honor and glory for who you are, for what you've accomplished in our place. Because of that, we gather to worship you this day. And we thank you for forgiveness, and we we thank you for mercy and for grace. We thank you for the gift of faith. And Father, we ask that you teach us to trust you. That you give us the gift of trust. And that you forgive us the sin of pride, which causes us to trust ourselves. To trust in our own strength, to trust in our own intellect, God, forgive us. We pray as your church gathers this day that you would bless us. Bless your church. We thank you. We rejoice for the blessings of the yesterday and weeks and years past. We rejoice at the blessings of your faithfulness in our lives and your faithfulness to your church. We pray today particularly for the John Butts family and the loss of John's father. Comfort them. Keep them close to your heart. And Father, we're sinful people gathered here today simply to focus our heart's attention on you. We've come here with our own pain. We've come here with our own distractions. We've come here with our own sin. And we pray, Lord, that there, those things might not be barriers to keep you from doing your work in our hearts and our lives. And so we lay that, we lay that down. And we pray that by the power of your Spirit you might speak. And by the power of your word, you might pierce our hearts. That there be no barrier to our hearing and understanding your word this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can sing these truths and that we can pray these truths and we can proclaim these truths. And so as these truths are proclaimed today, I pray that you would pierce our hearts with your word, that you would speak your words directly through our pastor this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to invite you. Boy, that sounded loud. Does it sound loud to you? Okay. I want to invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Chapter 7. We continue on our journey through the Gospel of John. We've made our way to the end of chapter 7. Our task this morning is to address John chapter 7, verse 53. 
through chapter 8, verse 11. If you've grown up around uh, Christianity, if you've grown up around uh, as a child through the biblical text, um, learning stories from the Bible, this is one of the more familiar stories from the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, an opportunity for the enemies of Christ to, to once again put him to the test and try and trap him by, by bringing before him a woman caught in the act of adultery and publicly trying to pinch him into a corner that he has no way out of in order to discredit him, in order to ultimately get him out of the way. And so if you've been around the, the, the church very long, you've probably run across this text. And so it is what we will look at this morning and address. Uh, I'll just read it to you, uh, beginning in verse 53 uh, to verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. In the early morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, uh, it was commanded to us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And he once more bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one to condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Fascinating story. Interesting event. So uh, our task this morning is to address this. And um, I'm going to address it really succinctly this morning. I know you're suspicious any time I utter such words. Uh, that it's even possible to do anything succinctly. Um, However, this one is quite possible. Um, Here is what you need to know particularly about this text. It does not belong in the Bible. No, I really mean that. I'm not joking with you. This text actually really does not belong in the printed Bible. You say, why does it not belong in the Bible? Well, if you've got your Bible open... Um, You'll notice at the beginning of John chapter 53, some sort of a bracketed note. Do you see that? How many of you see that in your Bible? Or an asterisk or something that points you to a footnote at the bottom. Do you see that? In my Bible, the, the English Standard Version marks it and it says simply this before verse 53. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And if, if you've got some other translation, uh, the um, New American Standard puts a note in, and their note says something like this. Um, I don't have it in front of me. It's going to have to come on the screen. There we go. Later MSS means manuscript. Later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman, woman numbering it as John 753-811. If you have the NIV with you this morning that you're toting around, um, then your note says something like this. It's a lengthier note. It gives you a little more information. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this section a few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7:36, 21:25, Luke 21:38 or Luke 24:53. 
So uh, let me just give you the quick sum total of this. The quick sum total of this is um, when, when we work our way back uh, through the manuscripts that we have available to us, this text was likely not there. I think it is quite certain that John did not write this story. I think it is about 95 to 98 percent, in my estimation, certain that it is not a part of the original inerrant text of the New Testament. I'm going to let that sink in for just a second because it probably just shocked you. Um, and so that's all we're going to say about it. So you have a nice lunch. They don't believe me. Take a vote, Pastor Frank. Um, okay, let me, let me just, here's what I want to do this morning with this. Um, I'm going to explain to you why I think this is true. And then what we're going to do is, is take a, a side trip. Now, let me explain to you what I mean when I say a side trip. My wife and I, uh, we, we drive a decent amount, and uh, whenever we travel somewhere, we you know, alternate driving. And for the two of us, driving is a completely different experience from one to the other. Is that true in your family, too? So when my wife drives, um, her, her attitude toward driving um, and her, her perspective on it is, is something like a, a combination of a NASCAR race and the Hunger Games. It's like somewhere you mix those two together. Um, the goal is, from the time the car cranks up to the time it turns off, you get to your destination the most direct route possible in the least amount of time. And the second rule is, everyone along the way is in competition with you to stop you from doing that. Um, and they have all sorts of ways of doing that, by cutting you off, by trying to get around you and cut back in, and that is absolutely unacceptable. The goal is always to make sure you don't let that happen, because you're going to get there fast and direct. Uh, for me in the passenger seat, that turns into a white knuckle sort of a ride. Um, but for her, it's completely normal. She doesn't understand why anyone would drive any other way. And um, so for me, it's a different perspective. For me, I'm the guy who's just taking a nice leisurely drive. You know, I'm going. I know where I'm going usually. Uh, most of the time I get there in a reasonable amount of time. But it's for me a pretty much a relaxing thing. I can enjoy the scenery. I can look around. You know, there's the occasional driver that just pushes even the most, you know, you know, column driver to the edge but you know for the most part it's just a leisurely drive i'm thinking i'm looking at the you know the scenery going along you know and every once in a while what'll happen when i'm driving is i'll make a turn that's that's not the most direct route you know what i mean it goes that way and i should have probably gone that way to save 30 seconds and for me that's no big deal at all i just you just keep driving and you just hey there's some lovely scenery the lord has made on this side trek that i'll enjoy and eventually i'll get back on track and get to my destination Completely different perspective on driving. So when I'm doing that, she's on the passenger seat, just in her head, you know, normally, uh, going, what are you doing? You're going the wrong way. You could have gone faster that way. And all these people are getting around you. And, and so you understand how this conversation works. Now, we both get to our destination. My argument is when she gets there, you know, your muscles are tight. Hers are, you know, just like that. And when I get there, it's like, hey, we made it. It's a good day. Um, I haven't won that, that conversation yet. I had that one over to my side. Don't think that I ever will. Um, but I tell you that to tell you this morning we're going to take a side trip. We're going to go off the most direct route. And so for some of you, <clears throat> you're like my wife, and this is going to annoy you to no end. You're like, come on, just get back on the freeway, would you? And for the others of you, I hope the majority of you, uh, you'll enjoy the, the ride down the side trail because that's what we're going to spend most of our time doing this morning. And it's an important side trail. 
Let me explain to you why, uh, what evidence there is uh, for these notes that you see in your Bible and why, um, uh, why it is that I'm telling you that this story does not belong in the text. There are some very clear uh, uh, pieces of evidence that point us to this conclusion. The first is, in the oldest and best manuscripts we have of the New Testament, this story is almost universally excluded. It's not found there. It's not there. You can look to them. You can find them. Um, you can find up to verse 11. And it usually goes from verse, I mean, excuse me, from verse 52 right on into chapter uh, 8, verse 11 with, no, with nothing in between. Sometimes there's a gap left. Sometimes there's a note and the text is there and later. It's not until you get about to the late 4th or early 5th century. And you're talking about a couple of centuries now beyond the writing of the New Testament, beyond the 1st century. Um, that this starts finding its way in pieces and parts into various manuscripts found in different locations. Um, and then, so on the one hand, in our oldest and best manuscripts, it's not there. It's not found there. Secondly, when you get to the 4th and 5th and later centuries, and you find manuscripts dating back to those periods, and you do see this story beginning to pop up in some of those, um, it's, it pops up all over the place. More, when it pops up, it pops up more often than not here in this part of John. But like the NIV note mentions, the story pops up in Luke on a couple of places on several manuscripts. It pops up in other places in John and uh, other manuscripts. And so that tells us um, that tells us something that's important, right? It tells us that even even as this story began to emerge as a part of the biblical text in copies and manuscripts, that the, the people who were copying it were unsure about what? Where it went. If you're unsure about where it goes, then that tells me you're unsure about who, who wrote it, right? Um, you're not sure is it Luke or is it John? Maybe it's here, maybe it's there. Um, so, another bit of evidence that points us to the fact that this probably was not original to the Gospel of John. Um, beyond that, uh, it, it seems pretty clear that John most likely did not write this story, did not record this story. Why is that? Because when you work your way through it in the in the text. There's all sorts of vocabulary and phrases, not just one or two, but a good six or so, that, that are almost completely fa- uh, unknown to the rest of John's gospel. You know, writers use a certain kind of vocabulary. I mean, you, when you speak, you, you speak in a certain sort of a way. And it's probably somewhat unique to you. You use a set of vocabulary that's common to you that's not necessarily common to the next guy or gal. Right? Are you agree with me on that? Some of you say y'all, right? Some of you say yuns, if you're from somewhere else, or use guys. You know, that's slang. You understand, you have your own set of, you know, vocabulary words that you use in your speaking. If you're writing, the same thing. And so a style begins to develop. And we can tell that with New Testament writers. So John is a style. He has vocabulary that he commonly uses. When you get to this story in John, oddly enough, we start seeing words that he's not using other places. Phrases and descriptions that we don't see anywhere else. It leads us to believe that it was likely not John who recorded this particular story. Um, so all of those main issues, along with some other more minor issues, point us to the fact that this, this text probably does not belong here in our Bibles, and it probably was not a part of the inspired original text as written by the biblical authors. Now, um, I've studied this pretty, pretty in depth this week, and what's interesting is most scholars will, will argue that although what I've just said to you is true, they will argue that, on the other hand, it probably is an actual historical event that really happened. Okay? That's two different questions. You get that right? Is it a part of the original manuscript of the New Testament? That's question number one. Pretty sure the answer to that is no. Is it an actual historical event that likely happened the way it's recorded? 
That's a second question. I think the answer to that is yes. Most scholars uh, would, would tend to agree with that case. Um, there's evidence that points to that. It's endured as a fairly intact account. It has shown up uh, uh, along the way where other stories uh, tend to disappear. And it doesn't seem to contradict the character and attitude and nature of Christ in any way. When what we see develop, what the picture we see of Christ in this story, we see many other places in the New Testament. It's quite consistent with his character. And so when we, when you, another way of saying that is when you read the story, you kind of get the impression, yeah, that sounds like what Jesus would do, right? Right? Okay. So it kind of has a, a ring of it that sounds true. Chuck Swindoll says this. Uh, he's, not, he's not known for his uh, uh, theological contribution, but he's actually a very astute theologian. He said this. Many fine Christian scholars consider the story authentic because the consensus of church history has judged it worthy and because nothing in the story contradicts other teaching. In fact, the passage fits very well theologically with Jesus' teaching and reflects his attitude at other times in his ministry toward non-hypocritical sinners. While I do not accept the segment of text as original to John, and so consider it neither inspired nor free from error, I certainly do not consider it worthless. So you see the kind of the, the road here that uh, Swindoll travels, and many, many, and most of those that I consider uh, reliable say that different ways but come to the same sort of a conclusion. So, uh, without beating that too far, I would just want to simply say, um, I, I think this is probably not a part of the inspired text, and so we should ought not, we should ought not. See, that's my vocabulary that you should never say or write anywhere. Um, consider or treat it as though it is. That's important. Um, at the same time, we don't want to throw it out and say that there's nothing to be gained at all from reading the story. Um, so that is the way most Bible interpretation committees take this. Most translation committees, they include it in the text, but they notate by, by virtue of a bracketed note or a footnote what we've just said they put in a sentence or two. All right. So instead of taking your time working through the details of the story, um, although I may comment on it at the end a little bit, what I want to do is, is take the side trip that I was telling you about earlier and, and ask and answer the question, uh, because it's brought up by this footnote, how did we get the New Testament that we have? How did we get these books? Where did they come from? How, how did these 27 books show up as opposed to other books that were written in the first century and shortly thereafter? How can we and can we know with any degree of certainty that when we actually pick up the Bible, the New Testament, that what we're actually reading are the words of God. Can we know that? And if so, how can we know that? Um, because you'll find skeptics all throughout the history of the church who will point to notes like this in your Bible and say, see, see, you can't rely on the Bible. They don't even know what's in and what's out. They're not even sure where these things came from. And, you know, there's been all these years of history and, you know, Nobody knows what actually was written way back then and what's been added later and, and what things have been changed and where errors have crept into the text. And there's no shortage in the history of the church of, of skeptics on the outside making those kinds of claims. Just in the last decade or, or two, uh, one of the most prominent has been a guy by the name of Denton. I say the most prominent just because he's produced movies and other things is, uh, and written books. Is a guy by the name of Dan Brown. Anybody see the Da Vinci Code movie or um, the one the ones after that? Um, well, you've maybe you read the book or something, but there, these are essentially the kinds of charges that Dan Brown makes in that book, and, and those book, that book, and the follow-up book, and the movie, and there was a follow-up movie, wasn't there? I think there was. Um, that that I mean, he made lots of money off of this, and uh, so what are the claims that he makes in there? And they're, they're, they're common claims made by skeptics throughout the generation. Let me give you a few excerpts. Um, one is the claim that the Bible is merely a product of man. 
Um, here's a quote from the Da Vinci Code. The Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven. Well, that's true, right? The Bible's a product of man, he says, not of God. The Bible uh, did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it's evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Not true, but it's asserted by the skeptic. He goes on to say 80 Gospels competed for a place in the New Testament. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. And he goes on to argue um, the idea that there were all these other Gospels at the same time, and they were all kind of circulating, but it wasn't until uh, a church council, a Catholic church council met, and this, this group of, um, of shady guys got together in a smoky room and put them all out. And said, we're going to pick this one and that one and leave these other guys out. Because these advance our political agenda better than the others do. How many of you have heard that kind of an argument before? They're common. goes on to assert that uh, the Bible as we know it today was uh, collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. Also not true. But consistently argued by the skeptic. He goes on to say the scrolls highlight glaring historical discrepancies and fabrications, clearly confirming that the modern Bible was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda to promote the divinity of the man Jesus Christ and to use his influence to solidify their own power base. So do you see the charge? Oh, this is God's word. Come on, people are crazy if you think that. These are just men who used Jesus Christ and they dreamt up this divinity of, of Jesus thing. And they, they, they did away with any writings that, that argued against that. And they only chose and put forth in the church community those writings that supported that idea because they really just wanted power over people. And they needed to have some divine figure in order to assert and take that influence. So we could go on and on with the skeptics, and that's enough to, to bug me right there. But let me ask you, just in, in, in your walk of life, how many of you have heard one of those arguments, some of those arguments, or something related to those as a charge against the authority of the, the Bible? Okay, quite a few of you have. Some of you are just too tired to put your arm up. I get it. Um, now let me ask you another question. This is more personal. And you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Um, how many of you feel confident and capable to respond intelligently to those charges? You're not prideful if you, if you put your hand up. Pastor Frank put his hand up. He's, he's not a prideful man. Um, okay, so uh, that's what I assumed. Probably very few, right? This is why the skeptics like Dan Brown have such an audience, because even within the Christian church, when these, when, these, when these kind of charges get thrown at the Bible, we really are not equipped to answer the charge, are we? We don't really know how to answer it, because how many of you, after all, have looked up a Bible manuscript? Okay, none of you, because you have other things to do in your life, right? Um, that just doesn't rank high on the scale. So what I want to do this morning with the time that we have left is try and equip you in this area. I want to answer the question, where do these books come from? How do we get them? How do we answer these kinds of charges? How do we identify these charges as, as absolutely foolish and false and ignorant uh, on the surface? So that's what we're going to go at this morning. How do we get the, and so I'm going to lead you through a few questions. How do we get the 27 books of the New Testament? How do we get these books? Well, after the resurrection, what do you think happened? How did, how did the stories get transmitted and passed along? You can answer back today because I'm, this is more 
theological and I'm going to make you talk so you don't go to sleep. Well, I mean, um, how, how, did, how did people tell the story of Jesus? They orally told the story, right? They passed the story along by voice. They sat down with their children and they told the story. They got with the next generation. They told the story. They got with their neighbors and they ran across people who'd never met him and never heard, who didn't experience him in person. And they continued to to spread the truths that he taught by voice, orally. Um, And this went on for a little while. But over time, the collections of stories, uh, the collections of of events, the words that Jesus spoke, the things that he did began to be written down and recognized by the church as authoritative and having the sanction of the apostles. Because, you know, for a good generation after the resurrection, we've got the apostles, right? And we've got the other folks who had firsthand access to everything he said and did, who saw and heard with their own eyes, their own ears, and could record with accuracy exactly what happened and what did not happen and so we have uh, really within the first century from say 8040 to about 8100 you have all of the books of the new testament are written down i mean they're all written down within the first hundred years um, the earliest of them written in the near early 40s and then the latest of them towards towards the end uh, late 90s right around the year 100 a.d and and these things were written down originally as individual books, right? But they weren't written as books like you know them. They were written on what? Do you know? Okay, like on, on papyrus or on vellum of some sort, and typically on scrolls that were rolled up individually, so they would be written down and they would be circulated and passed on. You know, one group of believers would have them, they would read them, um, they would then pass them on to the next group of believers and they would read them. And that was how the stories got circulated. Um, and they, they moved throughout the church community uh, after they were written. Um, and so uh, these things begin to be written and they begin to be copied. You know, they begin to be copied because, well, you can you can disseminate them better when you've got more copies. Right. This is such a foreign conversation to us today, because if you want somebody to know your thoughts or to know something that you've experienced, how easy or hard is that now? It's a piece of cake, right? I mean, I go on Facebook and I know what you had for lunch a few minutes ago because you put a picture of it on there. And I don't know why, but you do that. Some of you. I had a steak. Okay. Um, but if you want people to know what you're doing or what you're thinking, you can a couple keys and anybody in the world can see it instantly, like within seconds of when you do it. So we take for granted that for much of church history and much of the history of the world, that was not so easy. If you wanted to, to spread something or to transmit it, you had to write it. And if you wanted another copy, you couldn't just go throw it on the Xerox machine. You had to write, somebody had to copy it and then spread it and carry it by hand and so on and so forth. And that's how the books of the New Testament began to spread. Um, and so prior to somewhere around 200 A.D., these, these, these books were spread individually on individual scrolls. Uh, it's after uh, uh, 200 A.D., second and third century, late second, third century, we start getting, uh, we start getting these, these scrolls being compiled together and spread as groups or as smaller groups. And that begins to, to develop in the second and third centuries. And over time, what begins to happen as these things spread more and more uh, to make them easier to navigate, some things get added in. Like chapter divisions, right? So I tell you to turn to John chapter 7 this morning. That was a pretty easy task for you, right? Because when you open your Bible, there's a a, a number that tells you the chapter 7. You can find it, and there's a verse 53. You can go right to it. Didn't, you know, the originals don't have that. They were added so that people like you and me could find our place easier. It'd be a lot. It'd take us 10 minutes if I said to you, you know, find John. And somewhere about, you know, a third of the way down, Paragraph three, you know, you understand what I'm saying, right? So those things got added in later. When we talk about the books of the Bible, 
the 27 books that we have, we're talking about something called a cannon. Not something you shoot someone with, but the word cannon is what's used to describe the 27 books. It's also used to describe the 39 books of the Old Testament, the Old Testament canon, the New Testament canon. It's a word that originally meant reed or measuring rod, and it just came later to mean norm or rule, and it's applied to the books of the New Testament. It's a New Testament canon. That's when we say the New Testament canon. We're talking about the 27 books that we currently have. The Old Testament canon was written between 1400 and 400 B.C., over about a thousand-year period, okay? 1400 to 400 B.C. The New Testament, um, by the time we get to the New Testament era, uh, there's, there's widespread acceptance of the Old Testament canon as we have it today. All right? When you get to the New Testament, you've got 27 books written between 40 and 100 A.D., like I mentioned a few moments ago. Some of the books were instantly recognized as authoritative, Instantly, as they began to circulate, some may have taken a little bit more time. But by the time, uh, um, um, a short amount of time, these things begin to start to come together pretty quickly. Um, so what happens is these books are, are spread, and they're, they're circulated throughout the churches. So how is it that we came to these 27 books, and other things that were written during that time did not get included? Was there a group of uh, men sitting around a poker table in a smoky room somewhere with a political agenda, trying to advance their own power? Was that how, did they just sit there and put the books on the table and say, all right, let's pick these guys and let's leave those out? Is that what happened? No, it's not what happened. These things had been spreading around the church for quite some time. By the time you get to 100 AD, you know, by nearly a century now, they've been spreading throughout the church community. And what's happening all along the time is the church community as a whole, all throughout, is beginning to, is beginning to receive these things and validate them. You know, in the first century, it was fairly simple because there were people around still who did what? Who were there? Who were there for these events, who saw them, who heard them, who, when, a, when something came along that wasn't true, they could easily say, no, no, no I was there when that happened, and that, that's not true. You also have the, the apostles alive at the same time. So the church begins to already reject and receive different writings as authoritative and as true, uh, and reject those that are not authoritative and not true. And so what were the criteria used to compile the 27 books? What criteria had to be met for a book to be included in the New Testament? There are three, three primary criteria. The first is it had to be apostolic. All right, since we don't use that word all the time, it just simply means it had to be written by an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle. Okay? So it was pretty clear when the apostles wrote something because they had direct access to Christ. Because uh, the, uh, in the, later on in John, uh, Jesus says, you know, very clearly, after I go away, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. He's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to remind you of all the things that I said and did. And you're going to be able to disseminate those. So it was clearly assumed by the church community that the apostles had that authority to write on behalf of Christ. And that they would be able to do so because the Spirit of God would guide them in doing that. Um, so, when the apostles wrote something, um, it, it had a different sort of authority. It had to be apostolic. So, written by an apostle or one closely related to an apostle. All right, the second criteria was it had to be Catholic. And that doesn't have anything to do with the denomination of Christianity that you hear about today, the Catholic Church. It just simply means, the word means, it was ride, widely recognized as authoritative already in the churches. So there's not a group of guys who are saying, we're going to pick these and not those. It wasn't even that at all. What happened at the church councils was the councils only recognized and validated what was already what was already determined by the churches as a whole. They just validated what the churches had already received and accepted as the authoritative truth up to that point. 
And so, uh, so that was a second criteria. The third thing is it had to be orthodox. And that is to say, it had to not be in contradiction to any recognized book or doctrine. Okay? And you, you look at some of the uh, extra-biblical writings during the, during the same time in history, and you'll see stories that are clearly contradict things that are easily identifiable as written by the apostles. And so these things are clearly eliminated. Um, so you had in that time things that go on even in our day, things like people writing books um, and using names other than their own. You know, if I want to write a book and I want everybody to read it and nobody knows who I am, what do you do? Well, you sign Paul's name to it or you sign, you know, put somebody else's name and circulate it and people will read it. And it takes some time in the history of the church to get these things sifted out. But it wasn't three, you know, three or four guys around a table trying to sort this. These were the criteria that were used at the church councils. And all they did was really uh, validate and recognize what had already been determined by the, the local Christian community throughout the, um, uh, the, the Christian area at that time. So by the time we get to the late 2nd century, now let this sink in, the late 2nd century, the canon is essentially closed. By the end of the 2nd century, it's set. The 27 books are done, they're written, there's no authoritative writing after that. And by the time we get to 367 AD, we start seeing our first list of the original, the 27 books that we have today. That's a really short, it seems like a long time to you and I, you know, from the resurrection to 367. Paul uh, Johnston, though, back there is a, our local history you know, guru. That's what he is—a guru. Um, uh, in certain, but th- you didn't know that, did you, Paul? You're a Hindu guru now. I'm just kidding. Um, 367. You know, 300 years. Historically, is that a long period of time or a short period of time? We would call that, in general, pretty short, right? For things to develop and and settle down. I'll pay you later for agreeing with me. If you disagree, you can tell me. You know, privately, so I'm not embarrassed in front of everyone. Thank you. Um, but much earlier, much earlier than that, much earlier than that list, from, from somewhere around 90 to 100, the church is already accepting, it's already widely received these 27 books. Already, within 100 years of the death of Christ, less than 100 years. Um, so that's already happening. So this is how these things came about. This is how you get the 27 books and not other books. Does that make some level of sense to you? Yes, no. All right, all right, all right, all right. I'm moving on either way. So the big question, though, is, okay, if that's how we got them, are these books God's words or are they men's words? Because that's another point of con- conjecture, right? Okay, you got your 27 books, but they're written by men, not God. That's what the skeptic says. So how do we answer that question? Well, um, when, when we pick it up, what are we reading? Are we reading God's words or are we reading men's words? Well, the Bible claims that when you pick it up, you're reading God's words. That's the internal claim of the text. Uh, and throughout, from the Old to the New, that's the consistent claim. When you look at the Old Testament, you see many, many times this phrase, hundreds of times, thus says the Lord. Okay? That is a, a clear indication that the author is saying, what I'm writing is the direct word of whom? It's not my words, it's God's words. God's word. So we see this hundreds of times, um, hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And the prophets consistently say, you know, this is what the Lord says. And when they say that, they're claiming to be messengers of God. And they're claiming that the words that they're saying are not their own words, but they're God's words. And they come with all the authority uh, and integrity that, that comes along with the speech of God himself. That's the claim. Numbers chapter 22, verse 28 uh, we, we run into a prophet by the name of Balaam, and he says, Well, I've, I've come to you now, but can I, can I say just anything? And the answer to that is no. I must speak only what? What God puts in my mouth. Do you see how the prophet saw himself? 
He didn't see himself as a guy running around saying whatever he thought God would want said at the time. He saw himself as a guy who, when he opened his mouth, he was speaking what? The words that God put there. The words that God put there. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, um, the Bible tells us, The Lord said to me, um, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And what, what is the promise about this prophet? I will put my words, God says, in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I've commanded him. Do you get it? I will put my words in his mouth, and he will then what? He will then tell them what I've said. That was the role of the prophet. God isn't simply saying, I'll inspire him in some sort of a just motivational sort of a way. He's saying, I will literally give him my words, and he will distribute my words to those who will listen to him. These are my words, God's words. And that's an important thing. Because if, these are, if, if I pick up this book and I read it, it's God's words, then, then that means that there's a level of accountability that lays at my doorstep to respond to them a certain way, right? If, if this is God speaking to me, then I'm accountable for how I respond to it. And if it's just people who wrote this stuff, then I'm not accountable. And that's why the attack on the Bible is so violent. Because people know, if, if, if this is God's word, then they have to respond to it. And they have to obey it. And they desperately, desperately in our day, do not want to. We get down to uh, New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We have this text. Uh, Paul writes, and he tells us, All Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, and so forth. It's God-breathed. The, 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 word, here, um, the, the word here for God-breathed is the word that, that literally means it's breathed out by God. It's a word that was used for a boat being carried along its sail by the wind. That's the image here. It's the, the, the word of God is it's, it's a sail that's being moved and God is breathing it forth. It comes literally from him. Every word. And this is primarily re- relating back to the Old Testament. Every word that we see there is referenced as being God's words. The words that he breathed out, that he put into the mouth of the writer to speak. And even though he used a human agent to write it down, whose words are they? Even though he used a human agent to speak them, whose words are they? The Bible claims they're his. You get to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, another important text. Above all, Peter writes, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful illustration, isn't it? Who spoke? Well, who does he say spoke? Men spoke, but they spoke how? From God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful image of exactly what happened. It's not the voice of God you heard. It was the voice of Peter that you heard speaking. But they weren't Peter's words, right? They were God's words given to him and breathed out through him by the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and throughout the, the, old, the Old and the New Testament, you see all this evidence in the New Testament that reflects this about the Old Testament. And then when you get over to things like Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter begins to refer to Paul's writings um, as Scripture. He calls them Scriptures. Uh, another clear indication that they were recognized with the same sort of authority as the Old Testament prophets, as the Old Testament writers, that Peter and the other apostles uh, begin to uh, have that same sort uh, of 
of authority to write as the Old Testament writers do. They're even called scriptures. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, um, Paul quotes the Gospels, Luke, um, the Gospel of Luke, and he calls it scripture, just like the Old Testament. And so without taking up too much time on that, um, all throughout we have this internal evidence from the text that clearly Old and New Testament, the Bible claims, the internal claim of the text is, these are not the words of men, they are the words of whom? God. Men wrote them, but they wrote them not, they didn't sit down and figure out, now what can I write for God today? They sat down and God superintended their writing in such a way that everything that they wrote down on the page was exactly, exactly word for word, the word of God and what he intended to communicate to men. So that when we get to the original writings of the New Testament, the original copies of every book of the New Testament, we look to those and we would say of, of them that they are the absolute word of God without error, completely authoritative. Are you tracking with me? Okay. So, so then that brings us to another issue. Okay. We don't have any of those original writings. We don't have any of that. We don't have the original copy of Luke. We don't have an original copy of 1 Corinthians or of James. They were written in the first century. What year is it? 2014 for most people. And, and we don't have those copies. We don't have original copies of that. So that brings us to another question then. We don't have original copies. How did we get from the original 27 books to 2014, what you're holding in your hand? How did what happened in between there? There's been a lot of time. That's been, you know, just short of 2000 years. So a lot's happened in the last two millennia. Don't you agree? I mean, there's been a lot of things that have gone on. How did what happened to the text between those original writings and to today? Well, I mean, obviously, Peter and Paul and John and Luke didn't have a Xerox machine. They couldn't fire up their iPad and type it up and save it as a PDF and put it online. Right. They couldn't do that. Of course they couldn't. The only way that they could spread the word was to copy things by hand. And up until the, end, the, in, uh, the advent of the printing press, somewhere around the 15th century, um, that was the only way to distribute books. You copied them by hand. And there, were, there was a whole world of people who that was their job. You just you wrote, you copied things. You were a scribe and you copied things. So that's what happened to these uh, 27 books. You had manuscripts, and a manuscript is nothing more than a handwritten copy of, of the book. A handwritten copy of the book. It's called a manuscript. And for centuries, that's how the Bible was spread. That's how these 27 books were spread. Once they were compiled into one New Testament, spread as a group the same way. People copied them, copied them, copied them over the centuries, copied them, wrote manuscripts, and then spread them around. They were written on papyrus and parchment. Some were, you know, copied just for private use and others were copied for public sale. Uh, and, and of course, you, you and I talked about this a moment ago, um, you know, scrolls. So, you know, papyrus scrolls usually didn't go over 35 feet. So if you had a book longer than that, what did you have to do? Well, you split it into two books like Luke and Acts. That's what happened, right? We talked about that and we studied Acts, and I know you remember that, right? Acts has been a long time ago. Um, but there were very specific rules for how you copied manuscripts. There were very, very, this, 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 this matter was taken very seriously um, for centuries, and there were some very specific ways that you had to, to copy a, a, a New Testament manuscript. It, it paralleled how you copied Old Testament manuscripts. Let me just give you a little excerpt of some of the rules. Um, 
from, from Jewish sources. A synagogue rule must be written on the skins of clean animals and prepared for the particular use of the synagogue by a Jew. These must be fastened together with strings taken from clean animals. Every skin must contain a certain number of columns, equal throughout the entire codex. Uh, the length of each column must not exceed over uh, less than uh, 48 or more than 60 lines. The breadth must consist of 30 letters. The whole copy must first be lined. And if three words should be written without a line, it's worthless. The ink should be black, not red, green, or any other color, and be prepared according to a definite recipe. An authentic copy must be an exemplar from which the transcriber ought not to deviate in the least. No word or letter, not even a yod, must be written from memory. The scribe, not having looked at the codex before him, between every consonant, the space of a hair or a thread must intervene. Okay, do you get the idea? Every, how do you do this? You look to the original, how do you copy it? Letter by letter, right? Not word for word, but letter by letter. Letter by letter. Okay? And between every uh, constant, the space of a hair or a thread has to intervene. Between every um, a new paragraph or section, the breadth of nine consonants. Between every book, three lines. The fifth book of Moses must terminate exactly with a line, but the rest need not do so. Um, the copyist must sit in full Jewish dress, wash his whole body, not begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink. And should a king address him while writing that name, he must take no notice of him. So this is, I mean, Jewish legal statutes for how you copied Old Testament manuscripts. And the same sort of, of, of pattern plays out in copying the New Testament manuscripts as well. <clears throat> and so this is a very meticulous process of how these things are transmitted over the years. However, uh, regardless of the meticulous nature, there, when you consider the centuries over which this is going on, inevitably there are going to be some what? There are going to be some hiccups in the process. There are going to be the, the occasional scribe who doesn't go by the rules, who decides, you know what, this letter-by-letter letter stuff is killing me. You know, I'm going to go to the optometrist if I keep doing this. Um, I, can, I can get a whole word, you know, and starts going. And so what you end up with are occasional what we call scribal errors in transmission. Now... Important to get this in your head. The authority and errancy of Scripture is vested in which documents? The original manuscripts. Okay? From that point, we're transmitting and we're copying. Um, we recognize that in the copying process, there are occasional scribal errors. They fall into a few distinct categories. Let me give those to you real quick. Eyesight errors? Eyesight errors. What's an eyesight error? Well, you look at something and you just see it wrong. In the Greek, um, there are lots of letters that kind of look similar, like epsilon, theta, and omicron. They can look an awful lot alike, you know. So if you're sitting there scribing, you know, transcribing things all day long, it'd be very easy to look at a theta and see an omicron, or an omicron and see a theta, depending on if the copy you're copying from was really clear about it, or the guy maybe had a sloppy scribe before you didn't make it clear. You have to figure it out, and you may get it wrong. Um, there are other Greek letters that look similar as well. Or when you have some letters together, like if you have alpha and two lambdas and another alpha, which shows up as a Greek word often, it can look an awful lot like alpha mu alpha. Do you see that? So can you see how in transcribing over the centuries it would be easy for a scribe to confuse that and instead of two lambdas put a mu? Yes, you see that? It helps me. I know you're awake. I don't need a jumping jack or anything up here. Um, so eyesight errors, those kinds of things happen. You know another thing? Sometimes you have two sentences that end with the same few words. Okay? So you, you copy the first one, and when you come back, instead of picking up at the end of the first one, you pick up where? At the end of the second sentence, it has those same few words at the end, and what do you miss? A sentence in between, right? 
Okay, we have this in some of the manuscripts. So you see these occasional eyesight errors where we can identify where exactly what happened. There are hearing errors because over time there were some who made um, uh, manuscripts by dictation. Okay, so if we were dictating English and I said the word there, what would you write? T-H-E-R-E or would you write T-H-E-I-R? Well, if I didn't make it clear, then you wouldn't know. So you'd pick one. So we have those kinds of hearing errors. There are also mental errors that take place. (laughs) We don't mean that people are lunatics. What we mean is um, from time to time, they would try and copy instead of word by word a phrase. You know, look at the phrase. And when they go over to, to, to transcribe it, they would forget or invert words, get the word order different or things like that. Um, just simply uh, transposing letters within a word, that kind of thing. And then a, a final category we would just call judgment errors. Bruce Metzger says this about these. They're unintentional errors committed by well-meaning but sometimes stupid or sleepy scribes. I like that. I like that. It identifies the truth as it is. Um, but there are sometimes there were just there were just judgment errors that the scribes made, and we can identify these pretty clearly. Now, this isn't just to the biblical text. If you look to Webster's Dictionary, um, the Webster's New International Dictionary, the English language in 1934, you would see this word in the dictionary: the word "dord," and this would be the definition: noun, physics and chemistry, the field in which it's used, and it means what? Density. There's a problem with this definition in that particular dictionary. There is no English word doored. It doesn't exist. It was in Webster's Dictionary for more than a decade with this definition. The publishers later acknowledged that, and they rooted it back to find out how did this word get in Webster's Dictionary. You know how it got in there? Judgment error. A judgment error by somebody who copied an earlier rendition, D period, or capital D period, in physics and chemistry. That does mean density. But if you overlook those periods and you squish it together, what do you have? You have dored, which isn't a word. Okay. So when I say errors in judgment, you understand this happens all throughout language in general. This kind of thing can happen to scribes as well, where some punctuation is missed or something happens and there are judgment errors. And what we find is the case of our text this morning, John chapter 7. This section falls into this category of judgment errors. These stories that, that, that seemed authentic and began to circulate and it seemed like they fit in a certain place and the judgment was made to include them at some point. Um, one of the other things that happens in this category is sometimes in the, the transcribing process, there are marginal notes that were made, explanational kind of notes put in the margins we ran into this in john chapter 5 when we were preaching on you remember jesus coming to the pool of bethesda and the poor uh, paralytic man who was trying to get into the water Do you remember that story okay and there's a verse in that text that says that gives us an explanation why was this man trying to get in the water well there was a common belief that an angel stirred the water every once in a while and the first guy that got in what happened he was healed okay that explanation it was not in the original text. It was something that was originally a marginal note in, in a manuscript that simply was there to help people understand why this was going on. And as copyists copied over the generations, what happens? It moves from the margin into... It gets copied right into the text. Okay? So you, do you get the idea of how these scribal errors pop up and how this stuff happens? So at the end of the day, let's ask the question, can we trust that what we hold is true and authoritative word of God? If this is happening in the transmission process, can we trust that what we have is God's word? Let me answer that question for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have a tremendous, a tremendous volume of manuscript evidence to work with. Tremendous. 
amount of manuscript evidence to work with. We have <clears throat> currently about 6,000 Greek manuscripts that are very, very old. 6,000 Greek manuscripts, over 10,000 Latin Vulgate manuscripts, also quite old, and about 9,300 or so other very early versions. A total of about 25,000 different witnesses to what the early text was. Historically speaking, that's a remarkable amount of manuscript evidence. With that kind of a volume, it is very, very easy for us to be able to go back and look at that volume and see where there are aberrations. And you can very easily, and many have done this over the years, can track back and you can see a very consistent theme of exactly what the text says with very, very little variation. Very easy to identify eyesight errors, hearing errors, judgment errors. With that many volumes of, of manuscripts, you can see that. And when you compare this to other historic ancient works and, and what we have of those, it's actually remarkable. When you look at Homer's Iliad, 643 copies is what we have there. About 643. When you look at other things like Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, ten copies, the earliest of which is dated to a thousand years after the original writing. Uh, when you look at something like uh, the writings of Plato, we've got about seven copies of that to look at. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. How many read that in school somewhere? Yeah, you read that. About 80 manuscripts. Beowulf. Did you have that as an assignment in school? I have one copy of Beowulf. One copy. And, and there, I mean, you could compare this to other historic works, and, um, and you would be surprised at how few actual copies we have of works that are pretty much universally accepted as historical works without any question. And yet when you get to the New Testament, you've got this volume of 25,000 early copies, and the critics want to argue that it's not reliable. Uh, let me just summarize it by saying that the, the, the texts of the New Testament still remain to this day the very best attested documents that we have in the, from the ancient world. They really do. Really do. It's very easy to reconstruct the, the content of the originals and with a very clear degree of certainty. Um, R.C. Sproul says this. He says, I hope you're not disturbed to learn that there are copy errors in the early manuscripts of the books in our Bible. Some people hear that and they say, we don't have the originals. How can we say that the Bible is the word of God? Great illustration, he says. That's like saying that if someone put a bomb in the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Washington and blew up our official yardstick, there wouldn't be enough accurate yardsticks and copies to allow us to reconstruct what a yard is. Of course we'd be able to reconstruct it. And we could do so with infinitesimal variation. And the same holds true the text of Scripture. That makes sense? Makes perfect sense. Less than 1% of the text of the New Testament has even the slightest question of its, of its wording or of its place. Less than 1%. And in those places, like John chapter 7, verse 53, there is not... There is not one ounce of any of it that affects anything to do with the gospel message, and not one single Christian doctrine is affected by any of those texts. Okay? Get that in your brain because it's true. It's true. So when the skeptic comes in and says there's all these errors in the Bible and nobody knows what it really said, that's nonsense. We have a very clear and high degree of accuracy of what the original New Testament text says and what it said. And what you carry around with you today is an English translation that is remarkably, remarkably accurate to that. Remarkably accurate to that. And in the places where there's any question, you have a note in your Bible that tells you that, don't you? So you know. 
So when the skeptic comes along and says, you know, John 7:53 through 8, 12, 11 doesn't belong there. And there's all these other things in the Bible that don't belong. You can say nonsense. You don't know what you're talking about. Let me show you what we've got. We can stand on the word of God as authoritative and true. And we can say that what we carry is what was written originally in the first century by Peter, by Luke, by Paul, by James, by John, and the other biblical writers. It is the word of God. And because it is the word of God, you and I have to stand on it. We have to defend it against the foolish skeptic who comes along with this kind of Dan Brown nonsense. And secondarily, but not secondarily, even more important than that, we have to submit our own lives to it in obedience and trust and belief and faith. So that's our side road. We're going to pull back onto the freeway in John chapter 8, verse 12 next week. I would encourage you to read the story of the woman caught in adultery, though. It is, a, it is a fascinating story. And I think it does reflect the heart of Jesus. One who understands justice, but is very, very quick to offer mercy to the sinner. Isn't that true? It's true, isn't it? We see that at the cross. It's at the cross where Jesus died that the judgment and justice of God meets up with the mercy of God. And it's because of what he ultimately was going to do on the cross that he could say to this woman who is guilty as charged, being caught in the act of adultery, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Because he was about to die for her sin, just like he died for mine and yours. And he was able to forgive her and release her from the condemnation of her sin, just like he's able to con- not condemn you and not condemn me and release us from the penalty for our sin. As we sang about in the last song, there is no wrath. Um, there is no wrath that will bear, is there? A wormwood and no gall. Why? Because, our, because we're not guilty? No, we're very guilty. But because our Savior bore it all for us. So did hers, this woman in the story. And we give thanks for the grace of Jesus. And we give thanks for the word of God. We give thanks for the word of God. Do you give thanks for the word of God? It is a treasure beyond treasure beyond treasure. I hope you treasure it. I hope you value it. It's a gift to you from the God who created you. That you might know who he is. That you might understand who you are. And that you might know, that you might know how to live. To please him. Let's pray that that would be the effect of this book in our lives. Father, we have um, taken a trek down a side road today that uh, for some was quite frustrating, for others perhaps interesting. And yet it's an important side road because we live in a world of skeptics. We live in a culture that is um, increasingly rejecting you, increasingly rejecting your truth, increasingly believing uh, the foolish accusations of the skeptic. Because to believe the foolish accusations of the skeptic is to let themselves off from accountability to you. And yet, Lord, you've given us this treasure. A treasure that's more valuable than gold or silver or any other treasure that we could have. You've told us that the grass withers and the flowers will fade. But your word, your word will stand forever. The testimony of history up to our day has been a testimony of the truth of that. And as long as there are men on this planet, that truth will remain, as will your word. We pray, O Lord, that we would love your word. That you would plant it deep into our hearts. That we would embrace it wholly and completely by faith. 
that we would study it diligently, that it would be to us just as though you were in the room speaking to us face to face, and that we would submit ourselves to the truths that are contained in it, that we would obey its commands, that we would be challenged in the areas that we need to be challenged as we read it, that ultimately, through the words on the page, we would see you clearly and be drawn to you in affection, in faith, and in submission. Make us people of the book. Don't let us be fooled by those who would seek to destroy our faith. But let us be confident that we know you and we know your word. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me encourage you during this last song, if you need someone to pray with you during this closing moments of the service, Pastor Greg and others will be in the back and uh, so after the, during the song, you just make your way back there, and uh, there'll be people back there to receive. 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 There'll be people back there.